This is our 20, I want to say our 22nd part in the College of Christ series, which we've been doing since Easter. And we're coming to an end on it. It's the School of Wisdom, this College of Christ, this Learning Wisdom. And we're now with Job. We're sitting with the sage. This is the, this is beyond university. University was Ecclesiastes. We've graduated from university. We're now sitting with the man, the myth, the legend who has lived and had to embody and put skin on wisdom itself by going through things that you and I wish we will never have to go through. And yet, through it all, he has become this mature sage from whom we get to learn. However, we're about to embark on some chapters that seem to have no end. How many of you have read Job before? And how many of you uh, enjoyed the middle part? (laughs) I didn't see any hands. Yeah, the beginning's really interesting, Satan and God talking, you're like, wow, this divine counsel thing, and some of you shared with me how, like, I never considered that there's a divine counsel running the universe. Yes, there is, and we got a glimpse into that, that was amazing, the end is going to be cool when God shows up and speaks to Job, but until he does that in chapter 38, we have endless dialogues and wonderings, what is going on, Lord? And so we have to suffer through these questions with Job. It's one thing to suffer in a moment and to say, I will still praise God. It's a total other thing when the suffering has no end in sight. And there have been sleepless nights and endless months, and then people come alongside you and say, well, this has happened to you because you've done something wrong. And when this seems to have no end, that's when suffering is real. And that's when the choice to hold a faith or to give up is real. That's where true suffering lies. That's why, that's why James talks about the patience of Job. So we will have to exercise that patience. And not to be a Debbie Downer. I hope that I can do well with these texts and they won't be too boring. Um, but as you notice, we're going to go through a chunk. So the friends are going to come. Job's friends come to comfort him, right? And they're going to talk to Job in three rounds. So we're going to do a round a week. So round one is chapters 4 through 14. Um, Here's what I want us to see right before we dive in. Altar calls are really exciting when the preacher invites people to come down and accept Christ. I've tried that a total of one time in my life, and it went so poorly. I've never done it since. So if you're ever wondering why I never do that, that's why. Um, It wasn't that nobody came forward. I totally botched the whole thing. It's like a trauma moment. Uh, They can be exciting, especially the Harvest Crusades coming up. We love to see the thousands flood the field. That's that's fantastic. But, um, and this is not a knock on altar calls at all. But what we need to be aware of is that altar calls are not the only way to handle unbelievers. They don't address every situation, and they're not a solution to every situation. Sometimes misery is so deep that we need to show mercy, enter into their place with them. But what we see tonight is that Job's friends come to him, and basically they're going to offer him, each one's going to offer him an altar call at the end of their dialogue with him. As if Job needs converting. But this is what can happen, is we can often see people as something to convert rather than to comfort. And sometimes we need to reach people and comfort them before we can even start thinking about converting them, as if all of life was a mental game. So, um, as we dive in, understand that the theology of Job's friends is what drives this misery. Their theology is bad theology, because they basically want to convert Job to their view of God. They see the moment, like, oh, Job, this is all happening because you got it wrong. Convert him, convert him, convert him. 
And Job will eventually tell them that they are miserable comforters. Tonight, he'll say you're worthless physicians. So here's what the friends believe. In a nutshell, this is what they're going to say over and over and over. One. No, almost. God is in absolute control. Job agrees. We agree. Two. God is perfectly just and fair. We agree. Job agrees. But this is where they get a little bit different. Three. Based upon those two premises, as if that's all you need to understand about the universe, they then conclude that God will always punish the wicked and always bless the righteous. And if he didn't, then he's not absolutely and perfectly just and fair. Job would say, um, exhibit A that you're wrong. We would also say that that view is a little too extreme. It doesn't allow for Satan being in the world. It doesn't allow for a final judgment when not everything's going to be judged in our lifetime. Sometimes these will come at the end. That's when fairness will come for sure. And this doesn't always allow for the idea that suffering is sometimes permitted by God for our profound good that we can't always understand. Then fourth, there's a second wonky uh, part of the theology. So therefore, since God's completely in control and perfectly just and fair, therefore, if someone suffers, they are being punished for their sin. It's that simple. So here's how the dialogue will often go. Job, you are suffering because there is sin in your life. You've done something bad. Because according to their theology, that has to be true. They are right that God is just. They are right that he's in control. But they are too rigid in the fact that God always has to execute that in a timely manner as if he was a Google algorithm. That's not how it works. So they will say, Job, you must have done something wrong because look at you. It's evident. But Job would say, um, no, because I'm blameless and upright. I haven't done anything. I follow the path of wisdom. This is happening for some deeper, more mysterious way that we can't understand. And Job will throughout cry for help. He wants an audience with God, but he understands that he cannot get an audience with God. He just wants God to tell him, why is this happening? And tell my friends to shut up so that they know that this isn't because I sinned. Okay, so that's, that's what we're going to see. That's their mindset. I call that a theology of misery. Because when we have right beliefs, but we apply them too rigidly without allowing for mercy in people's lives, our theology becomes a source of misery. That's why they're called miserable comforters. Right theology is a good step, but learn how to use it with mercy. So, they work so hard to convert Job's theology that they fail to comfort his misery. He's become a project, not a person. May God help us that our theology may be one of mercy and not misery. Amen, amen. All right, round one is in chapter four. So here we go, is my goal. We're going to cover this. We're going to get the sense, that feel the angst of this. So chapter four, verse one, friend number one speaks. He seems to be the ringleader of them. It's Eliphaz, the Timonite, answered and said, chapter four, verse two. Here's how he's going to start. <laughs> he's a real nice friend. He's going to mock Job say a bunch of things, and then he's going to give him an altar call. He's going to mock Job. First words out of his mouth. Verse 2. So here's the mockery. If one ventures a word with you, will you be impatient? In other words, are you going to listen? Yet who can keep from speaking? Behold, you have instructed many. You have strengthened the weak hands. 
Your words have upheld him who is stumbling, and you have made firm the feeble knees. Job was that wise sage people came to. Your words have upheld, I just read that, verse 5, but now it has come to you, and you are impatient. It touches you, and you are dismayed. It is not your, is not your fear of God, your confidence, and the integrity of your ways, your hope. In other words, Job, how do you like the taste of your own medicine? Job, why don't you take your own advice and help yourself here? Scathing, opening mockery. Now, Eliphaz shares with us his creed that he lives by. This is the core of his theology, verse 7. Remember, as if this was well known, remember, who that was innocent ever perished? Or where were the upright cut off? As I have seen those who plow iniquity, so trouble the same. Oh, so trouble, reap the same. By the breath of God they perish, and by the blast of his anger they are consumed. The roar of the lion, the voice of the fierce lion, the teeth of the young lions are broken. The strong lion perishes for lack of prey, and the cubs of the lioness are scattered. This is, this is how it is, Job, don't you know? The wicked suffer. Let's conclude by what we're seeing here. Now he terrifies Job with a vision that he had just the other night. Verse 12. Now a word was brought to me stealthily. My ear received the whisper of it. Amid thoughts from visions of the night, when deep sleep falls on men, dread came upon me and trembling, which made all my bones shake. A spirit glided past my face. The hair of my flesh stood up. It stood still, the spirit, but I could not discern its appearance. A form was before my eyes. There was silence. Then I heard a voice. Can mortal man be in the right before God? Can a man be pure before his maker? That's probably the end of the Spirit's words, even though the ESV puts a quote to the end of the chapter. Uh, most commentators think that verse 17 is his words. So now Eliphaz is reflecting on this vision in verse 18. And he says, Even in his servants, God puts no trust, and his angels he charges with error. How much more those who dwell in houses of clay, that's humanity, whose foundation is in the dust, who are crushed like the moth. Between morning and evening, they are beaten to pieces. They perish forever without anyone regarding it. Is not their tent cord plucked up within them? Do they not die, and that without wisdom? Now, this vision's interesting. It kind of, it makes, uh, Eliphaz makes it sound like, look, Job, you're hopeless, but we don't have any sense here that life as his vision is actually of God. You can have demonic visions. A spirit comes to him and talks to him, and, and it's meant to terrify Job. And uh, we, we know that God has no problem with Job. We saw that with the divine counsel chapters in chapter 1 and 2. He sees Job as a pure and blameless man. But here Eliphaz is just grabbing at whatever spirituality comes and claims that this is God and this is what God says to you. We must be careful of people who think that they... Receive that word from God on our behalf. I've had it happen, so I'm assuming you have too. And we must be sure, we must use discernment. So he continues in chapter 5, and basically calls Job a fool here. Call now, is there anyone who will answer you? To which of the holy ones will you turn? So remember, Job asked a bunch of why questions. Why did I not die at birth? That was in chapter 3. 
So now they're saying, look, why don't you call upon the divine counsel and see if any of them will answer your questions? You're a fool, Job, they won't. That's what he's saying. No one's going to answer you. Surely, vexation kills the fool, <clears throat> you, and jealousy slays the simple. I have seen the fool taking root, but suddenly I, it, I curse his dwelling. His children are far from safety. They are crushed in the gate. There is no one to deliver them. The hungry eats his harvest, and it takes it even out of thorns. And the thirsty pant after his wealth, for affliction does not come from the dust, accidentally, nor does trouble sprout from the ground, but man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. So, Job, here's my advice to you. Verse 8. As for me, I would seek God, and to God would I commit my cause. <laughs> it's like, what is Job doing? <laughs> Who does great things and unsearchable, marvelous things without number? He gives rain on the earth and sends waters on the fields. He sets on the high those who are lowly, and those who mourn are lifted to safety. He frustrates the devices of the crafty so that their hand achieves no success. He catches the wise in their craftiness, and the schemes of the wily are brought to a quick end. They meet with darkness in the daytime and grope at noonday, noonday in the night. But he saves the needy from the sword of their mouth and from the hand of the mighty, so the poor have hope, and justice shuts her mouth. So seek Job, seek God, Job. He will make things right for you. That's the answer. God's the answer for you. Verse 17 is his altar call. Behold, blessed is the one whom God reproves. Therefore despise not the discipline of the Almighty. For he wounds, but he binds up. He shatters, and his hands heal. He will deliver you from six troubles. In seven, no evil shall touch you. In famine, he will redeem you from death, and in war, from the power of the sword. You shall be hidden from the lash of the tongue, and shall not fear destruction when it comes. At destruction and famine, you shall laugh, and shall not fear the beasts of the earth. For you shall be in league with the stones of the field, and the beasts of the field shall be at peace with you. You shall know that your tent is at peace, and you shall inspect your fold and miss nothing. You shall know also that your offspring shall be many, and your descendants as the grass of the earth. You shall come to your grave in a ripe old age, like a sheaf gathered up in its season. Behold, this we, me and the other friends, we have searched this out. It is true. Hear and know it for your good. So Job, if you just come back to God, if you just be righteous, good will happen to you. Uh, health and wealth, that's Eliaphaz's has vision. Health and wealth for those that love God. And Job's like, seriously right now? Well, here's Job's reply in chapter 6. First, he replies to Eliaphaz, then he replies to God. He actually talks to God in chapter 7. So in chapter 6, Job answered and said, Oh, that my vexation were weighed and all my calamity laid in the balances, for then it would have been heavier than the sand of the sea. Therefore, my words have been rash, for the arrows of the Almighty are in me. My spirit drinks their poison. The terrors of God are arrayed against me. He's saying, if you guys would just measure my misery, you would see that it outweighs any wickedness I could have ever committed. It's not fair. Now in verse 5, he's addressing Eliaphaz's words, he says they're empty talk, basically, in poetic way. Does the wild donkey bray when he has grass, or the ox low over his fodder? Can that which is tasteless be eaten without salt? 
His words are tasteless. <laughs> or is there any taste in the juice of the mallow? My appetite refuses to touch them. They are as food that is loathsome to me. <laughs> so there's a lot, you'll notice as we go, there's a lot of sarcasm between the friends. Uh, they're not, Job, Job meets the challenge as they are not very nice to him. Now in verse 8, um, he now makes a request that he would die. Not because he's suicidal, but because death as terrible as it is in the Old Testament without hope, death is better than the pain he's going through. So he just wants relief. Oh, that I might have my request and that God would fulfill my hope, that it would please God to crush me, that he would let loose his hand and cut me off. This would be my comfort. I would even exult in pain unsparing, for I have not denied the words of the Holy One. What is my strength that I should wait? And what is my end that I should be patient? Is my strength the strength of stones? Or is my flesh bronze? Have I any help in me when resource is driven from me? Now he addresses his friend's failure. Verse 14. He who withholds kindness from a friend forsakes the fear of the Almighty. My brothers are treacherous as a torrent bed, a torrential streams that pass away, which are dark with ice and where the snow hides itself. When they melt, they disappear When it is hot, they vanish from their place. The caravans turn aside from their course. They go up into the waste and perish. The caravans of Tima look. The travelers of Shiva hope. They are ashamed because they were confident. They come there and are disappointed. For you have now become nothing. You see my calamity and are afraid. He's he's talking about things that come and don't make, they, they, they don't reach their end of the bargain. The friends have come and they turned away short. They haven't quite given Job the comfort they set out to do. Verse 22, have I said, make me a gift or from your wealth, offer a bribe for me or deliver me from the adversary's hand or redeem me from the hand of the ruthless? Teach me and I will be silent. Make me understand how I have gone astray. How forceful are upright words. But what does reproof from you reprove? Do you think that you can reprove words when the speech of a despairing man is wind? You're picking at my words, and I'm in pain. I don't even know what I'm saying half the time. I'm lamenting. 27. You would even cast lots over the fatherless and bargain over your friend. But now, this is his closing despair here uh, to them. But now, friends, be pleased to look at me. He's saying, see me. Don't talk at me. See me. For I will not lie to your face. Please turn. Let no injustice be done. Turn now. My vindication is at stake. Is there any injustice on my tongue? Cannot my palate discern the cause of calamity? And now he turns his attention to God. He's going to say that human life is hard and it's brief. So that's his complaint to God. So he's going to say, it's hard, it's short, it's brief, it's hard. So why do you bring pain to my life? And then he's going to close with these hard questions, okay? Has not man a hard service on earth? And are not his days like the days of a hired hand, like a slave who longs for the shadow, and like a hired hand who looks for his wages? So I am allotted months of emptiness, and nights of misery are apportioned to me. When I lie down, I say, when shall I arise But the night is long, and I am full of tossing till the dawn. You ever been in such misery you can't sleep? Job's there. That's where he's been for months. 
My flesh is clothed with worms and dirt. Remember, he's got all the boils all over him. My skin hardens, then breaks out afresh. My days are swifter than a weaver's shuttle and come to their end without hope. Remember that my life is a breath. My eye will never see good again. The eye of him who sees me will behold me no more. While your eyes are on me, I shall be gone. As the cloud fades and vanishes, so he who goes down to Sheol, that's the Hebrew place of the dead, and he does not come up. He returns no more to his house, nor does his place know him anymore. Therefore, I will not restrain my mouth, and I will speak in the anguish of my spirit. I will complain in the bitterness of my soul. Am I the sea or a sea monster? Remember Leviathan? That you set a guard over me? In other words, Job's saying, look, am I on the wrong side of the cosmic battle, Lord, that you're fighting against me? When I say my bed will comfort me, my couch will ease my complaint, Netflix will make everything better. Uh, Then you scare me with dreams and terrify me with visions so that I would choose strangling and death rather than my bones. I loathe my life. I would not live forever. Leave me alone for my days are a breath. And what is man anyway that you would make so much of him? And that you set your heart on him, visit him every morning, and test him every moment. How long will you not look away from me, nor leave me alone till I swallow my spit? If I sin, what do I do to you, you watcher of mankind? Why have you made me your mark? Why have I become a burden to you? Why do you not pardon my transgression and take away my iniquity? For now on I shall lie in the earth. You will seek me, but I shall not be. God save me, or it will be too late. Final plea. Well, Bildad can't not say something now. Bildad's like, whoa, dude. So, chapter 8, Bildad the Shuhite answered him. Now, Bildad is going to start with a rebuke. They're all very nice to Job. And then he's going to tell him about his beliefs. They're very much into converting Job. And then he's he's basically going to hammer the fact that God punishes the wicked. So, chapter 8, verse 2. How long will you say these things and the words of your mouth be a great wind? Bildad's basically saying, I'm not, I'm not impressed by your speech, Job. It's empty air. Does God pervert justice or does the Almighty pervert the right? If your children have sinned against them, he has delivered them into the hand of their transgression. Remember all his kids have died? What a low blow. Oh, they got what they deserved. That's what he said. If you will seek God and plead with the Almighty for mercy as if he hadn't been pleading for mercy, if you are pure and upright, surely then he will rouse himself for you and restore your rightful habitation. And though your beginnings, though your beginning was small, your latter days will be very great. <laughs> Note that, because that happens. That happens at the end of Job. And Bildad thinks he's mocking the idea, and God's going to step in eventually and say, actually, that's a good idea. I'm going to do that. You're wrong, Bildad. For inquire, here's his belief, for inquire, please, of bygone ages, and consider what the fathers have searched out. For we are of but yesterday and know nothing, and our days on earth are a shadow. He's basically saying, don't think you can come up with your own theology, Job. You're, you're a short lifespan. we got to seek the traditions of the fathers. They know better. That's a great idea, because honestly, who are we moderns to recreate theology? But we have to make sure the theology that's handed down to you is good theology. Bildad clearly has it. A little iffy. Verse 10. Will they, the fathers, not teach you and tell you and utter words out of their understanding? So now he's going to say, all the wicked perish. 
Verse 11, can papyrus grow where there is no marsh? Can reeds flourish where there is no water? Of course not. While yet in flower and not cut down, they wither before any other plant. Such are the paths of all who forget God. The hope of the godless shall perish. His confidence is severed, and his, tr- his trust is a spider's web. He leans against his house, but it does not stand. He lays hold of it, but it does not endure. He is a lush plant before the sun, and his shoots spread over the garden. His roots entwine the stone heap. He looks upon a house of stones. If he is destroyed from his place, then it will deny him, saying, I have never seen you. Behold, this is the joy of his way, and out of the soil others will spring. Now the altar call. Behold, God will not reject a blameless man, nor take the hand of evildoers. He will fill you yet with laughter, your lips with shouting. Those who hate you will be clothed with shame, and the tent of the wicked will be no more. So, if only you're righteous, all will be well. Short altar call. Now Job replies to Bildad, and then he replies to God. Chapters 9 and 10. So Job answered and said, and uh, what he's essentially going to say here is that he's going to talk about the power of God as creator and then segue from the power of his wonder to how in the world can I get an audience with him to I'm desperate that God would just break through the clouds and say something on my behalf. Truly, I know that this is so. I don't disagree with you. The wicked perish. I get that. But there are exceptions going on here. Uh, Truly, I know that it is so, but how can a man be in the right before God? If one wished to contend with him, one could not answer him once in a thousand times. He is wise in heart and mighty in strength, who has hardened himself against him and succeeded. God, who moves, removes mountains, and they know it not. The mountain's like, well, I'm gone. I didn't know it. (laughs) He, uh, and overturns them in his anger. Verse 6, he shakes the earth out of its place, and its pillars tremble. He commands the sun, and it does not rise. Who seals up the stars, who alone stretched out the heavens, and trampled the waves of the sea. Who made the bear and Orion, the Pleiades, and the chambers of the south, the constellations. Who does not, who does great things beyond searching out and marvelous things beyond number behold he passes by me and i see him not he moves on and i do not perceive him behold he snatches away who can turn him back he will say who will say to him what are you doing god will not turn back his anger beneath him bowed the helpers of rahab rahab's like a another one of those like spiritual demonic beings so he's even subdued rahab um how then can i answer him Choosing my words with him, though I am in the right, I cannot answer him. I must appeal for mercy to my accuser. Interesting, by the way, Satan is the one who's accusing him in heaven, right? Um, But Job was the one interceding for people. So there's two very different roles going on here. And so Job, the interceder, has to be now, you know, he's he's accused by by Satan. Um, Verse 16, if I am summoned... If I summoned God and he answered me, I would not believe that he was listening to my voice. For he crushes me with a tempest and multitude multiplies my wounds without cause. He will not let me get my breath, but he fills me with bitterness. If it is a contest of strength, (laughs) behold, he is mighty. If it is a matter of justice, who can summon him? Though I am in the right, my own mouth would condemn me, though I am blameless. He would reprove me. He would prove me perverse. I am blameless. 
I regard not myself. I loathe my life. It is all one. Therefore, I say, he destroys both the blameless and the wicked. When disaster brings sudden death, he mocks at the calamity of the innocent. The earth is given into the hand of the wicked. He covers the faces of its judges. If it is not he, who then is it? I want to talk to God because I'm in the right. I don't know why he's doing this. I want to talk to him, but he's so much more mighty than me. How can I even speak a word to him? So now he's going to yearn for that specifically in verse 25. My days are swifter than a runner. They flee away. They see no good. They go by like skiffs of reed, like an eagle swooping down on prey. If I say, "Ah, I'll just forget my complaint. I will put off my sad face and be of good cheer. Well, I become afraid of all my suffering, for I know you will not hold me innocent. I shall be condemned. Why then do I labor in vain? If I wash myself with snow, bless you, and cleanse my hands with lye, yet you will plunge me into a pit, and my own clothes will abhor me. For God is not a man, as I am, that I might answer him, that we should come to trial together. There is no arbiter between us. Or another way of translating that is, oh, I wish that there were an arbiter between us, a mediator, who might lay his hand on us both. Let him take his rod away from me. Let not dread of him terrify me. Then I would speak without fear of him, for I am not so in myself. So he concludes what he says to build out with, if there was a mediator who'd stand between me and God, then my voice could be heard. Job's pleading for it. He doesn't think it can happen, though. We last week, of course, looked at that and said that we have the mediator in Christ. He is the one who goes to the divine counsel for us and intercedes on our behalf. Job is yearning for that. So now he talks to God. He basically is going to ask God to remember. He's going to ask him some hard questions. Then he's going to ask him to remember him because he created him, so you got to care for me. I'm your creation. Care for me. And then he's going to finish with uh, despair. Because he's like, but you have not cared for me. You've destroyed me. So I'm in despair. So chapter 10, to God, he says, I loathe my life. I will give free utterance to my complaint. I will speak in the bitterness of my soul. I will say to God, do not condemn me. Let me know why you contend against me. Does it seem good to you to oppress, to despise the work of your hands and favor the designs of the wicked? Have you eyes of flesh? Of course he doesn't. Do you see as a man sees? Of course not. Are your days as the days of a man or your years as a man's years that you seek out my iniquity and search for my sin, although you know that I am not guilty and there is none to deliver out of your hand? Basically, why are you picking on me, God? I'm a meager little piece of dirt. I'm a speck of dust. Why do you care so much? It makes no sense to me. So verse 8, your hands fashioned and made me and now you have destroyed me altogether. Remember that you have made me like clay, and will you return me to the dust? Did you not pour me out like milk and curdle me like cheese? You clothed me with skin and flesh, knit me together with bones and sinews. You have granted me life and steadfast love, and your care has preserved my spirit. Yet these things you hid in your heart. I know that this was your purpose. If I sin, you watch me and do not acquit me of my iniquity. If I am guilty, woe to me. If I am in the right, I cannot lift up my head, for I am filled with disgrace and look on my affliction. And if were my head lifted up, you would hunt me down like a lion and again work wonders against me. 
You renew your witness against me. You increase your vexation toward me. You bring fresh troops against me. Why did you bring me out from the womb? Would that I had died before my eye had, before any eye had seen me and were as though I had not been carried from the womb to the grave. Are not my days few? Then cease and leave me alone that I may find a little cheer before I go and shall not return to the land of darkness and deep shadow, the land of gloom and thick darkness, like deep shadow without any order where light is as thick as darkness. So please, God, please. Well, now Zophar has just had it. He's been listening like you to this whole thing, and he's like, all right, let me shut the door on this. So Zophar thinks he's coming in. He's the closer. He's going to finish the game. And boy, is he cocky. Essentially, this is the most scathing of the three friends debates with Job. And you hear it right away. In fact, the ESV beautifully, you know, sometimes your Bibles have little titles kind of summarizing what happens. It just says this, Zophar speaks, you deserve worse. That basically sums it. That's a really good summary. Job, you think this is bad? You deserve twice as bad. Thank you, friend. So, 11 verse 2. Should a multitude of words go unanswered, and a man full of talk be judged right? In other words, Job, you have said way too much. It's time to put you in your place. Verse 3. Should your babble silence men, and when you mock, shall no one shame you? I mean, come on. Here I am to do all that for you. For you say, my doctrine is pure, and I am clean in God's eyes. But, oh, that God would speak and open his lips to you, and that he would tell you the secrets of wisdom, for his, he is manifold in understanding. Know then that God exacts of you less than your guilt deserves. You got it easy. But, oh, it was so good, verse 5, when he says, but, oh, that God would speak and open his lips to you. This is so ironic, because God will open his lips and speak to Job, and Zophar will be proven wrong when God does. So watch what you wish for, Zophar. Verse 7, he's going to talk about the depth of God. It's like, Job, how can you even pretend to know God? He's too deep for you. It's like, duh, Job was just saying all that. But Zophar sometimes got to twist the words and say, you don't even understand. Like, he's way too deep for you to talk about him. So let me talk about him. Verse 7, can you find the deep things of God? Can you find out the limit of the Almighty? Is it higher than, it is higher than heaven. What can you do? Deeper than Shul, what can you know? Its measure is longer than the north, uh, no, its measure is longer than the earth and broader than the sea. If he passes through and imprisons and summons the court, who can turn him back? For he knows worthless men. When he sees iniquity, he will, will he not consider it? For he knows worthless men, Job. (laughs) That's you. But a stupid man will get understanding. When a donkey's colt is born a man. (laughs) You can see him laughing at his joke. Job, you'll get understanding when a donkey gives birth to a man. (laughs) He's so stupid, Job. And now his altar call. The third altar call, verse 13. Job, if you prepare your heart, You will stretch out your hands toward him. If iniquity is in your hand, put it far away. Let not injustice dwell in your tents. Surely then you will lift up your face without blemish. You will be secure and will not fear. You will forget your misery and you will remember it as waters that have passed away. And your life will be brighter than the noonday. Its darkness will be like the morning and you will feel secure because there is hope and you will look around and take your rest and security. You will lie down and none will make you afraid. Many will court your favor. 
but the eyes of the wicked will fail. All way of escape will be lost to them, and their hope is to breathe their last. Dun, 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 dun. So Job, look, prepare your heart. Let go of your sins. Bring it to God, and all will work out. If not, it's going to be bad for you. So the three altar calls have been given. Job replies to them in the last three chapters. Um, he's going to say in chapter 12, look, this is God's power as creator. This is his power. Look at it. My friends, your theology of God is too small to allow for this majestic creator. That's what he says in chapter 12. Um, then in chapter 13, he rebukes his friends. So let's look at chapter 13. Behold, my eye has seen all this, and my ear has heard it and understood. What I know, what you know, I also know. I am not inferior to you. So he's telling him, like, straight up, you guys talk to me like, I'm in, like I don't know anything. Like, you're better than me. I get everything you're saying. You're not seeing me. You're seeing a situation, and you're applying, you're applying this cruel, merciless theology. Basically, it's just all conception. You're just throwing it out, and you're not considering my flesh and blood. Um, I'm not inferior to you, but, verse 3, I would speak to the Almighty, and I desire to argue my case with God. As for you, you whitewash with lies. Worthless physicians are you all. Oh, that you would keep silent, and that would be your wisdom. Hear now my argument and listen to the pleadings of my lips. Will you speak falsely for God and speak deceitfully for him? Will you show partiality toward him? Will you plead the case for God? Will it be well with you when he searches you out? Or can you deceive him as one deceives a man? He will surely rebuke you if in secret you show a partiality. And the dread of him will fall upon you. Your maxims are proverbs of ashes. Your defenses are defenses of clay. So let me have silence and I will speak. Let come on me what may. Job's saying, I've made up my mind. Why, you can't convert me. I've made up my mind. Why should I take my flesh and my teeth and put my life in my hand? Because though he slay me, I will hope in him. Yet I will argue my ways to his face. I'm going to be faithful to him. I still want an audience with God, and I want some answers. But I've made up my mind, and you guys cannot convert me. And then in chapter 14, he basically, at the end of chapter 13, he pleads out to God as his last hope. And in chapter 14, he talks about the brevity of human life. And then in verse 7, he's basically wondering if there's any hope for him. 14 verse 7. For there is hope for a tree, if it be cut down, that it will sprout again, and that its shoots will not cease. Though its roots grow old in the earth and its stump die in the soil, yet at the scent of water it will bud and put out branches like a young plant. A tree can be cut down and grow again. So he's wondering, can I? Verse 10, but man, but a man dies and is laid low. Man breathes his last and where is he? As waters fall from a lake and a river, wastes away and dries up, so a man lies down and rises not again. Till the heavens are no more, he will not awake or be roused out of his sleep. Oh, that you would hide me in shoal, that you would conceal me until your wrath be past, that you would appoint me a set time and remember me. So yeah, she's like, no, trees have hope, men don't. 
But then there's this moment where he thinks maybe resurrection is possible in verse 14. If a man dies, shall he live again? All the days of my service, I would wait till my renewal should come. You would call and I would answer you. You would long for the work of your hands, for then you would number my steps. You would not keep watch over my sin. My transgression would be sealed up in a bag and you would cover over my iniquity. There's a moment of hope in resurrection. But then, nah, verse 18. But the mountain falls and crumbles away and the rock is removed from its place. The waters wear away the stones. The torrents wash away the soil, the earth. So you destroy the hope of man. You prevail forever against him, and he passes. You change his countenance and send him away. His sons come to honor, and he does not know it. They are brought low, and he perceives it not. He feels only the pain of his own body, and he mourns only for himself. And Job has to conclude our first round of debates with no hope. He's lost hope. Now, the debates are going to get more intense as they go. We would, would, uh, I'd like to conclude our reflection on this first round of debates by understanding very clearly what we need not to give people and what we need ourselves. A theology without mercy is a theology of cruelty. It's a theology of misery. And in the end, God condemns Job's friends for exactly that. In chapter 42, verse 7, he's going to say at the end, The Lord said to Eliphaz, a Temanite, My anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. See, without mercy, people become something to convert rather than Someone to comfort. And we see that attitude of the friends. Job, you got to see it our way. Job, you got to see that you're in the wrong. Job, you got to understand. Job, just stop talking. You're wrong. So why don't you just repent and come to us? Come down to the altar and give your life to God and everything will be hunky-dory for you. I have no problem with altar calls. So don't hear this as something against that. But that's not always the right response to people. We have to know them as people. What we need as Christians is we need a creed. We need a creed that is bigger than an altar call. Like we need to be more than just get people into heaven. Save them. Win them. We need more than that. We need to walk with people. We need to love people. We need to bring them into life. Did you, did you know the gospel is more than sins away, out of hell, go to heaven? Like, that we've reduced gospel messages to that. It is so much more than that. And people in Job's condition understand the wisdom of knowing Christ beyond he saved me from hell. Like, that's just, like, that's the baby step of the gospel. Like, that's the first step. Like, that's good. Good for us. We understand that. But now we need to understand the gospel is the life of Christ and the mercy he came to bring us. And so, consider, in closing, contrasting two creeds. The creed of the friends and the creed of the apostles. Job 4, 7 through 9, we had already read it. But this, is, this summarizes their creed in a nutshell. Remember, you can almost hear them confessing this together in unison. 
Who that was innocent ever perished? Or where were the upright cut off? As I have seen those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. By the breath of God they perish, and by the blast of his anger they are consumed. So let us go and be righteous so that we are not consumed like those sinners. (laughs) Remember the Pharisee and tax collector's prayer? (laughs) Thank God that I'm not like that tax collector. It sounds like this is the creed of Job's friends. But conversely, we have the Apostles' Creed. Now, the Apostles' Creed did not literally, it wasn't the 12 apostles sat down and wrote this creed. It is called the Apostles' Creed because this is they, basically the core of the gospel teaching handed down. It came about sometime in the 3rd or 4th century. Uh, you guys, Many of you guys know the Apostles' Creed. but it, it's I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate was crucified, died, and buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. He will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, in the Holy Catholic Church, in the communion of saints, in the forgiveness of sins, in the resurrection of the body, and in the life everlasting. Amen. Um, by the way, Catholic, you always have to say this because some people get all alarmed. Catholic means universal. It's not the ca- capital C, Roman Catholic. So I believe in the Catholic Church, the universal church that we are just a part of. The Apostles' Creed there. Okay, so the friends of Job would come and say, oh yes, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. Amen, let's go eat. A Christian, we believe in more than that. We believe more in his control over all things. We believe more in than just his justness and his fairness over all things. Because just that alone can lead you to some wonky conclusions, like Job's friends. Oh, oh, that happened to you? Well, clearly you need to do the altar call all over again. You're lost. How do you know that you're saved? But see, Christianity, we go further. And I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. And I believe in the Holy Spirit. We have so much more to say. So consider for a second... Job wanted consolation. Did his friends give it? Their theology is not one of mercy. Yet our creed says he suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, buried. He descended to the dead. Not to make too much of this, because we said that last week, when Job is there in the ash heap, he's sitting in the literal picture of hell in an ancient society with all the rotting carcasses of the city dump. He's in hell. And yet Christ has gone to the literal hell. He's gone lower than any of us can go. There's no bottom where he cannot hold us. Job needs mercy. The true gospel gives mercy. It gives consolation. Job is wondering if there's hope. Is there resurrection? Nah, I don't think there is. Yet our creed says, on the third day, he rose again. There is hope. That even if we don't see justice or fairness in this lifetime, we know that he shall come again to judge the living and the dead. So Job, Job is yearning for a mediator. Well, our belief says that Christ, he ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. That means we have that advocate he was crying out for, that mediator who is in the divine council and part of God himself saying, Father, here is Job's complaint. I will tell him, like, he can speak to us. He's the one putting the hand on Job's shoulder and on God's shoulder and saying, this is what's going on. 
we have what Job was yearning for, the mediator. And Job just wants, he's crying out to God, he wants to speak with God because he wants vindication. He wants to know that he's in the right because everybody is doubting that around him. We cry for vindication. We want to know that this life we've given ourselves to called Christianity is actually worth it. We want to know that everyone who says that we are believing in fables and myths and lies, we want to say, we want to one day just hear from God, yes, my well, well done, faithful servants. You were, you were right to hang out with me all the time. What is the wisdom of man? Like, you sometimes just want to hear that from him, right? That's vindication. Job is yearning. He's crying out for vindication. And as we believe, he will come to judge living in the dead. Judge is not, we always think of judge in negative sense, like judge is like, ah, cut them off, they're gone. Judge the living and the dead also means to vindicate those who've been in the right and to let the world know they're in the right. Job is going to get that at the end. God's going to come and vindicate him and say, friends, what he said, he was right the whole time. You were wrong the whole time. That's what we get. That's what the whole world gets when he comes to judge the living and the dead. Jesus himself told us, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. We cry and we pray, every Sunday we pray a lot for mercy, right? We need the healing and the mercy of God so that we can give the healing and the mercy of God to others. We're praying against the mentality of Job's friends from being in our hearts. And we would rather suffer and receive mercy than to let others suffer and give them misery and cruelty. All glory and honor and praise to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, now and ever and unto ages of